that's the problem with Western societies that you make mistakes, you know, you have challenges in that, and we certainly do, then they're, they're in this world now, but we have to have this ability to really move through that angst. And part of that angst is also healing. So transformative creativity is the ability to move through that angst towards that passion in fellowship and relationship with, with other human beings. When I was in grad school at the University of Washington, I heard rumors of a gallery in Portland run by a photomedia professor who had given their property to an indigenous nonprofit. After a little more digging, I learned that the rumors were true and had in fact only been finalized a few weeks ago. So I reached out to Flint Jamison, the professor and artist I mentioned earlier, who ran a space called Yale Union in Portland, and also connected with Lulani Arquette, the director of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, to have a conversation with them to learn more about what they did together. In this episode, interloper hosts Lulani and Flint to uncover an imaginative way to approach indigenous reparative acts beyond land acknowledgements. I was personally touched by this conversation and hope it will inspire you as it did for me to consider new and creative ways in approaching reparative acts for indigenous peoples. Originally, my name is Lulani Arquette and warm greetings to all of you. And I'm the president and CEO of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. I come from Hawaii. That is my homeland, but I'm living currently here in Portland, Oregon for the last 12 years, running the organization and doing some very exciting work. And I come from a background of, I've been almost 25 years running different organizations in Hawaii, all kinds of organizations, primarily Native Hawaiian based from multi-service to arts and culture to sovereignty and self-determination, social justice work. And I come from the background of performing arts. I'm a theater performing artist and don't have time for that now, but in my earlier days, did a lot of theater and performing. So thank you for having me be part of this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you too. My name is Flint Jameson. I'm an artist. I was born on Crow Land in in Montana. And about 12 years ago, I co-founded an artist-run or yeah, art center, artist-run art center in Portland, Oregon called Yale Union. It was a 501c3 nonprofit entity. And yeah, I was the president of the board of that organization until it dissolved just a few months ago. And let's see, I'm an artist now and also associate professor of art at the University of Washington. Well, so on this podcast, we, again, we try to approach everything with creativity and we we actually are hoping to have a lot of discomfort that can also come up in the midst of all this. And we actually wanted to start off with an uncomfortable thing for us to bring up, which is the question of land acknowledgements. We are at the very beginning and I was just recognizing that we don't, we have not been doing land acknowledgements on our podcast. And then recognizing, you know, having Lulani on here and talking about indigenous people and indigenous rights, you know, how do we actually reconcile that moving forward? But also, what is the virtue of land acknowledgments to begin with? Because we could also recognize there was a little bit of virtue signaling in 
wanting to have a land acknowledgement. Well, yeah. And what Connor's talking to is we thought about this with not just land acknowledgement, but also with several things about statements and our selection process or whatever we're doing with the residency is we do see a lot of performative stuff and a lot of virtue signaling. And we, we want to make sure that when we do something, it's we've really thought through that we feel like it's something that is actually being asked for from the community that we're acknowledging instead of just something that we're deciding. And also, we're curious, do you even want to talk about this? I'm not uncomfortable talking about land acknowledgements. What I can say is that I think that land acknowledgements were and, and are still important. And I think that we need to do work past land acknowledgements. Now, as you've mentioned, that there could be a tendency for some organizations, venues, cities, states, conferences to be doing it out of just a consideration that this is the right thing to do and kind of a check off the box kind of thing. I think some of that is happening now and some of it's well-intentioned and some is, I just got to get this done and do it. But I think what we risk in just stopping there is that there isn't really a commitment to the true history, understanding, and reclamation of Native knowledge and what has happened in Indigenous communities across this nation, and for that matter, in BIPOC communities. So I think that there's organizations that are trying to work towards this. USDAC is an example. And thinking about what are the next steps, because they were one of the first organizations that started working on a broader level to provide background and tools and training for organizations to do land acknowledgement. And I was actually part of part of that. I I'm part of I helped the organization. And then, but they are moving in expanded directions now. And I think have I'm not sure if they're still going to be working with that. But it's like what what do we do now past that? We can't just stay with not land acknowledgements. There's and again, I'm gonna say why you there's a great example of what you can do past it. What mm-hmm. Yale Union and, and NACF has done, you know, it's just kind of putting the the intention behind it for real, real change. You know, we, we know that, I mean, we have histories of where, you know, our Native stories have been ignored and we see where this racial equity has kind of brought, brought this, brought into light across our country. And we also see how we, we are yearning in this country for ability to gather and learn and share experiences together we're watching climate change threaten we're burned we burned up <laughs> out here last summer there's still things going on across this country our native el- you know i can go on and on on the the challenges and stuff native elders and culture bearers are are passing in our native communities so but if we focus there then we there's no hope so we must just recognize these things i think and then focus on ways that we can really bring change and transformation and new thinking and new actions to address some of this because we're stronger together. I remember we are stronger together and I'm an absolute believer in that. I love what you're saying about, you know, our words and our acknowledgements leading to action and that really important piece that's tied to it. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is you know, I think about with language, sometimes if there's a language you can learn to say, then there's also a language you can learn to hide behind and look like you're actually doing something without doing it. And so knowing that like we have people that listen to this podcast that are all across the spectrum of, of their own kind of education and awareness, 
the, the very bare minimum, like even this idea of land acknowledgement in a digital space, like what, you know, what does that mean? And where are we going with that? And so I just want to encourage everyone to stop right now for like two seconds and think like, do you even know what land you're on wherever you are? One, do you know what land you're on? And two, do you know more than that? Do you know anything about the people that have lived in that land for as long as the land's been there? And so that's like a very basic place, I think, for people to start that are listening. And then there is so much more beyond that, which is what we're going to talk about today on the podcast. Yeah, just quickly. And Lulani said it all so much more eloquently than I will. I do think that, yeah, there's just a, a lack of like material implications for or the, as a result of like this kind of hollow language and that, yeah, and it doesn't have to be necessarily as <laughs> dramatic as the Yale Union story where, you know, like non-metaphorical decolonization took place, but it can be as simple as, yeah, like what are proceeds where's the money going of like, of events where like land is being acknowledged in front and this kind of thing. Like, let's just see some like actual material, like support of like oppressed peoples. And it can be so simple instead of just being that like, kind of like fuzzy, nuanced language, virtue signaling. Yeah. And, and so that's part of why we wanted to bring you all on this podcast, because this particular conversation series is called This Land is My Land. We're really thinking about ownership in particular regards to land and borders and what it means to belong to a location. And we're actually trying to get in contact with Real Rent Duwamish as well. Just trying to think of these, these particular projects that have happened and are happening across the U.S. in regards to what are these material ways that we are able to address indigenous impression and have material and economic justice for these peoples. So I would love to just open it up now. We'd love to just hear the story from both of you. How did Yale Union and Native Arts and Culture Foundation come together? And how did this property transfer happen? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Yale Union was like arts presenting space. It was occupied, it owned, it possessed <laughs> and occupied a building that was on the land that was the size of half a square block. And the building was multiple floors. And then its geographic location in Portland, Oregon was like in the inner Southeast near the river on what once was kind of like trading marshland. And the ownership of that property was the, our institutions like primary asset and the mission of our organization had been to kind of like propose new models of production. And we did that through making exhibitions and publications and performances of contemporary art in this very large exhibition hall. And we also used our privilege, our unearned privilege as property owners to rent out the space to long-term tenants who had art studios and various kinds of production facilities, as well as short-term rentals of like for photo shoots and weddings, because the space is like oddly beautiful. And so those short-term rentals were very lucrative and we used that income to su support the programming of the art and also our staff, a lot of the operations costs. 
Okay, so that's kind of like an overview of what the institution was and how it was and how it operated. We really started making exhibitions in 2011 and then really, really got going in 2012. And at that point, the neighborhood was like, it would be like a light industrial neighborhood. There wasn't a lot of residential and the industry that was there, I mean, it was just mostly warehouses. Some of these abandoned warehouses, the building itself that we were in had been empty for a few years before we took over. And shortly after we started putting on art shows, we noticed, you know, that like some like trendy coffee shops were like opening around the corner. And then one or two years later, we noticed that like, yeah, there's like a crane in the sky, kind of like a block away, a couple blocks away, you know? And then by like 2016, 2017, that crane multiplied into like dozens. And in 2017, the Trump passed this kind of like bill with bipartisan support, the US Tax like Tax and Jobs Act. Sorry, I need to, I can link that. But that bill paved the way for what was known as the Opportunity Zone. And this provided, you know, this provided tax benefits for developers kind of like without parallel previously. And opportunity zones were like designated throughout the entire country. And they were like technically or like had historically been spaces in, in urban centers that were maybe considered depressed. And Yale Union was located in one of those opportunity zones. So what was like a dozen cranes in 2016 became like two dozen and three dozen cranes, maybe Lulani. I don't know. I'm not, I, maybe exaggerating, but it's like the pace of gentrification really metabolized. And yeah, to what extent gentrification is like a contemporary capitalist form of colonization was a conversation that myself and the other artists and leaders in our organization were having at the time. And also, you know, to what extent we were complicit and like in that and culpable of that version of like colonization was another conversation that our leaders were having. And there was conflict within our institution about how to respond to that culpability. And that turned into like a crisis in leadership in 2017 or 2018, early 2018. And then at that time, we, as a board chair, I like appointed a board member, a previous board member of Yale Union named Yoko Ott to be the director of the institution. And that's when this conversation really got started. (laughs) And yeah, maybe Lulani, you can take a turn. Yeah, it was really quite unsuspecting and surprising to me because I was contacted by Yale Union through Yoko Ott and asked, you know, sort of invited to come down to the building. And I had met Yoko Ott earlier when I first moved over here, when she was working up in Seattle. She was an incredible leader, curator, and really what I felt was a really vibrant, brilliant arts administrator, arts curator, just person, human being. I didn't have the chance to develop much of a relationship. We, you know, had met at a few conferences and I think events that she had sponsored up in Seattle. And then I 
get this email asking, t telling me that she's down here at Yale Union. I, I had known of Yale Union, but had not done much interaction with him before. And invited me down to the building at what I thought, from my own cultural standpoint, we call it was a talk story time. We're going to talk story. Another, we're going to just catch up, right? And to my utter surprise and actually shock, she told me that they were interested in, you know, transitioning the ownership of the building to another organization and that we were one of the organizations they were highly considering or that they were interested in because they were interested in continuing the arts. Obviously, an organization that was native-led, native arts-focused, and, and they'd been following a little bit of the work that we've been doing over the years. So that's kind of it in a nutshell from what happened. And from there, you know, there was still some more ups and downs and challenges that occurred very immediately after that for reasons that I think both Flint and I are still trying to figure out. It, it might, there might be some light onto why that happened, but, <laughs> you know, Yoko is no longer with us. And Flint had reached out to me after the short months after we, I had originally been there and said that they were even more interested and passionate about continuing with this idea of transferring ownership of the building to NACF for many of the reasons that they had talked about, but felt much more even compelled than they had before. Just, you know, all the things that Flynn had mentioned that were happening in Portland and in other cities, and also that we were happening in Native communities and the struggles and whatnot. So we went on a journey together, basically. <laughs> and that journey led us to where we are today. And that journey was, I put a team together, we had to do, a, you know, sort of the administrative part of feasibility study of the condition of the building understand what Flint and Yale Union and the team had been doing, all the wonderful work and challenges and really beautiful things that had been done there. And then I presented it to my board and they approved it. And this past February, we the actual legal title transferred this year. And we are now, and we just had a reception. We had our first, as I mentioned, our first board meeting here in Portland and we just had two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I think it was Flint. Yeah. We needed to kind of close as from a native perspective. What does that mean? Closing the and closing. It's kind of closing the loop and opening another in, in, in a sense or, you know, sort of moving, moving through the circle, the circle of change. And that part of that in native communities is really honoring YU and their board and staff. So we we did a special honoring of them in a dinner just with us. Mm -hmm. No guests. It was just our board and staff, their board and staff, and a few artists that we brought in to, to kind of do that. And that was a way that meant a lot to us. I, I can let him tell you what it meant to him but, <laughs> and them, but I really enjoyed getting to know their board more. I've been working primarily with Flint and staff and formed some real strong bonds in the last couple of years and a couple of the board members I knew, but it was just a real great opportunity for my board to get to meet their board. And really just that talk story happened that mm -hmm. evening. It was very, mm -hmm. I think it was very appropriate because also YU in their last exhibition that they would were doing as YU in a sense had brought in Marianne Nicholson and her exhibition was in the room we were in still. We postponed, what do you call that Flint when you're taking it down? Yeah, the deinstallation. Deinstallation. Yeah, extended and, the show. Uh, yeah. 
it was a beautiful show. And I just keep thinking of all that beautiful blue light and the shadows coming in through those windows of the building as we were eating our dinner and as, you know, it was getting a little bit towards the evening hours. And you just felt like it was sort of bathed in this turquoise sea of light with all of her iconography, her images that are were exhibiting kind of their lines and shadows on the floor. It, mm-hmm. It's just really beautiful, that exhibition. And it was really appropriate because they unknowingly, because this was, you know, postponed because of the pandemic, had chosen a, she's an Indigenous Canadian artist, to do this a- exhibition. And then, you know, it was a little late doing it because of the pandemic. They did it in the space with, of course, we, of course, we let them use the space. <laughs> Thank you for letting us Post use, the space. Your, use and, your space, um, Lulani. Yeah, it was just awesome. It just, everything came together. It's the right thing. It's very important for us as Native peoples that this happens. It's an intangible. It's an intangible kind of energy and feeling and relational kind of importance to us. I want to point out something really fast that just happened because I don't want to move past it. It's really kind of at the heart of what we're talking about. Just this idea of ownership thing being transferred to your organization, Lolani, and then this immediately opening up to let Yale Union come back in and use the space mm-hmm. is exactly what I'm talking about. This idea of being open-handed in a place where people haven't been open-handed with you. And I just wanted to highlight that moment because that was just a really special part of your story. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, thanks, Lulani. I've been wanting to like call you actually and talk about the ceremony. And so now that we're just, I mean, just discussing it here, it was like, but it was really bananas. And I was obviously crying mess. And one further anecdote, you talking about the windows and the light in the space, and maybe we'll be able to kind of share documentation of the exhibition through the podcast, like paramaterial. But there was also a building was on fire in the neighborhood mm-hmm. for the, like 24 hours, 48 hours actually yes. preceding and after that event. And so we looked out the windows and there was just like billowing smoke everywhere. And then there was this art show with a indigenous artist in a building that was like possessed by an indigenous led arts organization in an urban center. And man, it was, it was so good. It was like a really yeah. nice moment. <laughs> it's one of the better That's moments true. I've had in years. Let's just say that. That's so true what Flit said, because when we were getting ready to come over, my staff, we were at the board meeting, at, at staying at a hotel at the board meeting. It, my And they, my staff came up and she says, there's a fire burning by the building. We're going to have the reception. And it's like practically kitty-cornered across the street from it. They're blocking off the streets. I think we're still able to get through and get and have it. But so we were on alert the whole time. And then we were able to have it. It was just like surreal. This has kind of been our experience all along. Everything has been surreal in a Mm -hmm. sense, you know, but it's kind of being open to that. Again, it's open to that, the possibilities in that energy flow that's so important. Again, it's about the relation. It's relational. It's so important for human beings of this relational development and and building trust among one another. Yeah, Lulani, I've learned so much from you. Thank you. Likewise, (laughs) you know, Flint is modest and humble about a lot. And I've learned a lot from him and his brilliance as an artist. (laughs) He's built half the tables and a lot of the structures that are in the building. Every time I sit at that table in the kitchen, I think of Flint, you know, 
and your team, some, you know, I mean, literally built these, some of these things. So he has a lot of talents. I just wanted to say like, I'm like so honored to be like in this conversation with y'all and to hear this and like have this witness. I'm just like, I'm tearing up over here and just like beaming and I can like feel the spirit with how y'all are speaking about this. It was just, I don't know. I'm just like so grateful for this moment and what y'all are like, you know, it's been like this whole process to getting here and it's just the beginning too in so many ways. But I just wanted to say this is like, I'm just very honored. So. Yeah, it does feel a little special that we're getting to be a part of a really special conversation that two of you are having together about this as well. Which I kind of like pushing into that a little bit of this idea of relationship. And Luani, I love that you keep bringing it back to that because I think it's something that's so important. And one of the number one things that gets lost when we talk about ownership. And so in order to kind of break that down a little bit, I'm curious just for some details of like, when you transferred ownership, like, what did that mean? Who actually legally owned the building? And then who was it actually transferred legally to? And then also when we talk about legally, under what legal system are we talking about? Like, was it the US, United States legal system? And how did that work? Well, we are still operating under the legal U.S. system as far as the administrative transfer and some of the work that's being done around that. So that I could tell, you know, mention our part and then Flint can mention any, add anything on. But for us, it was important to do the due diligence because I, you know, we live sort of in this world that we're living in. I wish it just could be relational, but I think we're too complex and it's very complicated. Our society, we're, we're large you know, 300 million people in the United States. There's a lot of sort of deconstruction that needs to be done to these systems, I think. That's another century or another many decades, I think. And people are starting that right now. There's all kinds of yeah. communes and communities and lawyers that are doing this too. So, But with us, it was, you know, through regular attorney, U.S. practice, transferring the title from Yale Union to NACF. But how we did that, we formed an LLC and the actual title was, the legal title is in an LLC, which is a subsidiary of Native Arts and Cultures Foundation nonprofit. And that helps, it does help to some degree still as we're growing and transitioning and, deter and building the Center for Native Arts and Cultures and, you know, some of the work that needs to be done around fundraising, just the whole thing that we wanted to make sure to protect any risk to the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, our nonprofit that may happen and uh, somebody coming in and burning up the building or, or whatever it may be, you know, there's things that happen in these or in our urban cities or, you know, just different kinds of things that may happen. So, and Flint, you may want to say from your side, I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah. I think like these documents that get signed, they are very alienating and symbolic at the same time. And so we, over the course of whatever this three-year process, the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation and Yale Union had signed multiple, multiple kind of agreements with each other. Our boards had voted multiple times on this, what is like a lot of risk on both entities. And yeah, and we're both, yeah, beholden to, you know, various, various laws governed by like institutions that operate within borders and borders are like very problematic and especially now like I think in the midst of this pandemic we're realizing that you know we're not like that borders can't really control us but at the same time they do 
And so, yeah, it's been, it's clunky. It's been a clunky, you know, there's some clunky stuff and yeah, definitely some of the binding agreements. Every time we got a new document, I was freaking out and so excited. Like, oh, look, we got one more, one step closer. The feasibility study is approved by the board one step closer. And eventually, yeah, we were, we just transfer, actually transferred the asset. And yeah, we do that through like legal system and yeah. And then, but it didn't really feel real until last week or two weeks ago when the relational mm. thing happens. Mm-hmm. It's just so great that that's the moment where it was solidified. And were there stipulations on the transfer? Like was the new ownership allowed to use the space in any way they wanted? Like was Olani and, and the board and the organization able to use it or did, were there stipulations on how it could be used or was it just completely no stipulations within the transfer? The only stipulation would that, that it be used for arts and cultures. Mm. Okay. At a continuous and arts mission focused organization presenting artists and arts and cultures, native arts and cultures in this case. Yeah. And that's a covenant that's on the deed, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't placed by Yale Union and Yale Union has dissolved. We have no strings attached at all. Mm-hmm. So, so how was that? And I'm really curious because the reason I'm asking these like nuts and bolts questions, and I'm also curious to hear from you all about what you've learned, what you would have done differently is because. I would love to see more of stuff like this happen. And so I think what you're doing is you're really being trailblazers. And so I'm asking these really pragmatic small things because I'm just, you know, really curious, like where, if, if Yale Union didn't put that on the deed, where did it come from? How did you get to that stipulation? So the way that Yale Union ended up being the owners of this property is through, I'm going to call that one a gift by an angel patron to the nonprofit and that patron received all kinds of like, yeah, tax benefits as a result of giving ownership of the property. But before it even came to Yale Union, it had that co- restrictive covenant on the deed. So I love how you're making a differentiation. And I'm asking you a question that might be awkward or embarrassing, but I'm curious about it. I keep thinking like, what was in it for Yale Union? Like, so this idea when you said the difference between a gift and a transfer of ownership when you give gifts, you get tax benefits, tax write-offs, you can feel good about yourself. And so I'm curious what was discussed as far as Yale Union, like what was in it for the organization and the nonprofit? Why did they choose to do it? And maybe the answer is nothing. I'm just curious how you grapple with the question that I'm asking. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the benefits and privilege of what we had for like a decade were something that we like through maturing came to realize and we like we very specifically with native arts and cultures foundation like you know have chosen to use language that kind of like removes you know itself from like the baggage of benefit we transferred we didn't give we didn't like what are some of the other words that we didn't think were like good we didn't seed because like how can we own something that we like that wasn't ours to begin with. Okay. And so on a bigger view. So, yeah. I love that. I think even your answer, you're like showing the problem, the question that I'm asking. And I love that you use the term, like distancing yourself from the baggage of benefit. I love that. So thank you for your answer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was curious, Flint, just from Yale Union's perspective, was the death of the organization a part of Yale Union? Like at what point did you realize it was time for Yale Union to move on and for a new organization to take its place. 
Yeah, cool question, Connor. I think, yeah, I'd probably use the word dissolve instead of death. But yeah, that we, like, as I mentioned previously, the institution really only benefited from the ownership, ownership of the property insofar as it, as the earned income mm-hmm. that was generated from that ownership through the rentals is what made it, made it run. And so it was just a real, it's a real nuts and bolts practical thing. NACF now gets rent checks <laughs> that we used to. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it's cool. We just ran out of money. Yeah. I think mm. the other thing I'd like, if I may add on, I know we're getting near the hour here, but that I think that, I think there was sort of kind of mutual benefit here actually. And I think obviously we benefited the most, <laughs> of course, but I think the benefit in the sense of a vision of sort of social change, I'm just going to use that language for right now, that was really important from Yale Union side. And that by, you know, sort of transitioning that ownership and me, re, us rematriating the building to NACF, it sort of, I think, enabled interrupt me if you think I'm overstepping here, Flynn, it enabled sort of a growth and a change in YU staff and board in the sense of, I don't know if it's healing, certain senses of healing, going through a lot of self-reflection, organizational reflection, but that we were able to, in some ways, kind of take that change of ownership, this building and the land that it sits on, and then take the energy that they had put into the work that they had done with the building, with their programming processes and rentals, carry that forward to benefit ourselves, right? The rentals that are still coming in and also, you know, help them to kind of, I think, move, feel that they've, well, they have, you don't feel it, you have, that they've done a really remarkable thing here that I think is a model. And I've talked with Flint about it. That I, so I think we need to write about this. I think we need to maybe write a case study on this. We both don't have time right now, but we've talked about writing about this. And I think that, you know, for us, they were patient with us because we took longer to get through this process than we originally committed to in the beginning. It was, you know, not just because of the pandemic, but just because of our own quote due diligence that was important from my board side. And, we do sometimes work at a more native pace that, that is a little bit, you know, sort of takes sometimes longer. And so in that sense, you know, it drew it out a whole nother year from what our original intention was, but it worked. It all worked. It all happened for the reason that it happened. And we, I think that was the great thing about working with YU. It's just this understanding that some of these sort of what we you could look at is and other people that would be observing from the outside would say, wow, what challenges or what chaos or, and we were looking at it as part of the process. And then, you know, I mean, like the the last thing was with that burning building the night of the reception. (laughs) It was just like, this is the beauty of life, you know, in a sense, you don't recognize the goodness, the wonderful, the, you don't recognize that unless you can, it's, sort of mirrored by what helps you recognize that. And that mirror is really the reflection. So it may be that burning building. Oh God, it could, or it may be this challenge with, 
whatever it is. I mean, we you don't know one without the other. You know, you have night, you have day. It's the duality. So anyway, I'm getting kind of off track here. <laughs> no, no. No, Lonnie, actually, I'm asking you a question because I want to hear you keep talking about this. And this is the main question I've been dying to ask is in the bio, when it, where he talks about Native Arts and Culture Foundation, it talks about, you use words, transformative creativity. And I was just so struck by you putting those words together. And I would love if you could talk about what is transformative creativity? Why did you choose or why did your board choose to write that? And what does that mean to you? Right. Well, transformative to me means it has sort of a, you have to kind of push through further than you'd push through some angst and passion, right? Because it's not things that transformative needs, you know, it's it's really quite large. It's quite big. It's the other side. It's jumping off the cliff. It's <laughs> it's really going for it. It's, it's a high level in, in easy terms for people. It's a high level of risk, I think is the best way to say it. Emotional, social, mental, financial, organizational. Transformative requires a new kind of thinking and being. Mm. And I think if we can push through that as human beings and certainly that and not get so caught up on the, what we usually get caught up on, you know, this is the problem with Western societies that you make mistakes, you know, you have challenges in that. And we certainly do. They're, they're in this world now, but we have to have this ability to really move through that angst. And part of that angst is also healing. So transformative creativity is the ability to move through that angst towards that passion in fellowship and relationship with with other human beings. And for us, the creativity part is that takes creativity, but also because we're an arts organization and we support artists and creatives that are out addressing every, all of these issues and furthering our culture. I didn't really have a definition for it when I had you just asked it, so that's kind of off the cuff what it was. That was great. <laughs> I know. I was like, can you write a book or paper on that as well? Because that was just a really beautiful thing because I think creativity is so important to me because I just see the the power. And like to me, creativity is everything. It's creating, it's collaboration, it's you know, thinking beyond what we're constricted by. But I love that you're how you're talking about the transformation and the cost to it. It's not just a flash in the pan, it's not just passion. There's a commitment to actually changing and letting it change you which brings back to that relationship. So anyways, all that to say, yes, that was incredible. Thank you. That was way beyond what I even imagined when I read <laughs> those words together. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just finish with one question for you, Lulani, which is what is the building called now and what is happening in the building moving forward? It's called the Center for Native Arts and Cultures. And we are currently doing tours of the building now. There's three things kind of happening. We're doing tours of the building because the new vision for the building, we're going to do some retrofitting of the space and that's requiring raising dollars. So we're engaging in a capital campaign beginning in 2022. So we're in the process now of working through some of our pre-development plans. So part of that is showing different stakeholders, tours of the building that we have going now. And that includes not only funders, but also potential partners, other organizations in Portland, Oregon, that we may engage and also that may utilize the space. So we have multi-purpose community meeting space that we want to have for 
community partners, if they want a board meeting or a, whatever meeting they may need, that's challenging sometimes to find in Portland. And then we have looking at our native artists and their spaces that are already in there that why you developed by putting up temporary walls that create little niche spaces for artists to create. And so we're looking at that as we move into 2022, but prior to construction and renovation, how we engage artists and let them utilize this space, native artists here, here locally for temporary residencies. And then we have our, so it's community building, community partnerships, engaging a local community. There's, there's 60,000 native peoples here in this area from over 340 diverse tribes. People don't realize that Portland is, I can't remember what it is, maybe the ninth largest urban native population. I think it's around there in the country. And so there's a lot of activity that can be done here. And at the same time, working at our national level, because we're national. So, you know, stay tuned for the, yeah. the renovation. We're on a tight timeline and we're looking at a three-year period and to start the renovation in 2000, late 2023 takes a year, grand opening in 2025. And we will have the links mm. to your organization in wow. the bio of this podcast. And so anyone listening to this, check it out, figure out how it weighs. I am really big on, you don't need to do your own thing. Even as an artist, you don't always have to create your own thing. Find other people that are doing cool things and support that. So go to their website, find out how you can support them Hmm. and support what's going on. I just want to encourage everyone to listen, to actually click on that link and find out more about this. And if you're listening in 2022, then you can check out their fundraising efforts and their (laughs) capital campaign, and you can help support that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Al. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for your time and for your gifts of what you've been doing. Thanks for just being y'all. And just doing cool <laughs> things in the world. Thank you. And letting everybody witness it. Thank you guys so much. Awesome. Flint. Thank y'all. Always great, great to, to see you, you again. Everybody. Keep All in right. touch. See everybody later. Thank Bye. you. See y'all. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th. Of each month. The 29th. Of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram. At interloper underscore unlicensed. To find out what's next. Be sure to follow. And subscribe. Wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by. Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden. And Tiffany Danielle Elliott. And David S. Studio. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur.